Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. On this podcast, we often find ourselves saying we need to wait to see what happens in Italy before we know where Europe is heading. So Italy has now voted and God knows what it means. But we're here to try and make some sense of it and we're going to talk about Germany too. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. It is a great pleasure, as always, to welcome back Chris Clark to this podcast. I had some, um, yeah, I had slight bits of fruit diced into some goat's milk kefir. Chris is a historian of Germany, among many other things, and we're probably going to start with Germany. We also have Chris Bickerton. After long negotiations, we've moved on from sort of porridge, porridge with milk to fruit and fibre. And Helen Thompson, who knows about everything. You don't like it when I say no. that, do you? Do you want me to say something else? Yes. <laughs> oh, I like saying that. That's what people think. <laughs> oh, go on. Don't okay, okay. Uh, I've got worse things to deal with than that at the moment. So. <laughs> the it's being, true, it's the true that someone I know did say exactly that about you. Said she's fantastic on all subjects. Yeah, exactly. That it is the thing. You just have to know that is your calling card. So let's start with Germany. Not, I think, because it's simpler, but at least it's uh, the story is further along. In that it's taken about five months, I think, to form a government, and it may take that. I mean, who knows how long it's going to take in Italy? But we do at least now know. And we talked to Chris about this before when things were much more. Up in the air, we talked actually before the election, which Chris called correctly, but um, it's taken a long time to get to where we are now. So we now have another grand coalition. So Germany, again, is in some ways behaving like Germany in that stability is being prized over other things. The membership of the SPD, and there were some thoughts a few weeks ago that there might be a kind of Corbynish surge of young people who were rejecting the established order, but no, it was a good, solid two-thirds majority for this grand coalition. Do you think it's stable? I mean, do you think this thing can actually last the duration, given how hard it was to cobble it together? I think there are elements of potential instability. One could see the parties having divided into two wings. On the one hand, the wing led by Kunat. This is the SPD. This is the SPD. On the one hand, the sort of left wing led by Kunat, the chairman of the Jusos, the Jungsozialist, and the sort of youth movement of the of the SPD. And on the other hand, the sort of more moderate figures who will be playing a role in government. You could also say that the SPD has found a rather good solution to this problem, which is to allow the left to continue to mobilise and be active, uh, as it were, in the different constituencies, but to concentrate also on government and uh, maintaining stability, providing Germany with the kind of stability that voters, the great majority of voters, expect and wish for. And after all, 66% of the SPD internal voters who took part in a referendum on the question of whether the SPD should enter the coalition or not also took the view that they wanted the party to be part of the process of government. Do you have a sense of how much of that hung on the fact that they've got the finance ministry? Because that seems like the big concession here, to go from Schaubler to essentially a social democrat. Yeah, this is a major concession by the by the CDU that the, the job which was Wolfgang Schäuble's crucial job in, in the government, the <laughs> finance minister, is now passing to the hands of Scholz, of Olaf Scholz, the SPD man, who's regarded as a sort of, you know, safe pair of hands, a relatively moderate, even conservative 
and Social Democrat. So in some ways, the parties found a way of catering to both interests. And one interesting thing that's happened is that the, the role of the head of the party, the Parteifositzende, the chairperson of the party itself, and the sort of governmental role have been separated. So Andrea Nahles, who is going to run the party, will not have a role in government. The government ministers come from the right wing. The party itself will be largely organized by the left. So one hopes that what this will result in is a party that can take part in government and at the same time meet the challenge posed by the AFD in the constituencies, especially in, in industrial areas, which are feeling a lot of pain at the moment in Germany, the Rhine and the Ruhrpott and so on, areas where the SPD has shed a lot of votes to the extreme right-wing party, the Alternative for Deutschland. Because it's almost like a distinctively German thing, and it has a probably long tradition going back to the birth of the current German state, that politics and government somehow need to be disentangled from each other. I mean, it's almost like the ultimate version of that. You've got a party that is going to put its politics over here and its responsibility to the nation over here, and it will try and carry on as though these two things don't collapse into each other, which in the context of Europe would be a unique achievement because everywhere else, politics and government are just hideously mixed up. Yeah, and I mean, it's either a risk but if it works, on the other hand, it's a very clever it's thing German to do. It's German genius. It's German genius. So it just might work. There's one interesting final point, and that is that the SPD has built into the coalition treaty, there's a sort of document which embodies the purpose of the coalition called the Koalitionsvertrag, and in that there is a so-called Sollbruchstelle, a circuit-breaking clause, which means that after two years, the SPD has the right to get all the parties to sit down there to look at the question of whether the SPD is doing well out of the coalition, and if it's not, shut the whole operation down and start the game again. That you could see as another element of instability, but it's also, of course, a guarantee of stability for the next two years that the the SPD will stick the course and will put serious effort behind making this coalition work. I think it's a it's a fine line, and it may work. Chances are probably it will work in a formal sense, which is I would be surprised if even after two years there's a decision to to pull the plug on the Grand Coalition. But the question really is whether it works for the SPD, and that's where I have my doubts. Parties are, I suppose people say they're meant to be responsible but also representative. And so clearly the SPD is exercising its governmental responsibilities by taking part in government. But at what cost? And there is a wing, I think, within the SPD that took this very seriously and were determined to uh, enter government and to do a good job and felt that what they'd managed to negotiate in the coalition agreement was a pretty good deal, really. And so I suppose are committed to it ideologically. They think it's a good thing to do, the right thing to do for the SPD. I think the membership vote is explained more by a certain caution. Some of the people voting in favour of the agreement really believed in it. Many thought, I think, slightly naively, that this time is different that the impact on the SPD vote share over time won't be as bad as it has been in the past, partly because Merkel is towards the end of her reign. There's a chance for the SPD to to win votes in the future because she will presumably step down. I won't run again. They've got the finance ministry, which they didn't have last time. So thinking that, that it's different. I think what was going on within the SPD was a real struggle. It was a kind of generational, intergenerational civil war. And clearly, many of the younger uh, members of the party simply felt this was a very bad idea, were very committed to it being a bad idea, and I think for lots of good reasons. But for the SPD, I think 
it's undeniable that it will be associated with the activities of the government as a whole, that it can carve out for itself some distinctive identity whilst being a member of a grand coalition and a distinctive identity that is centre-left or left, I think is just unrealistic. And so my feeling is that over time, when it comes around to the next federal elections, the SPD will have a pretty tough time distinguishing itself. And the shift away from the SPD and the, the growth of the AFD vote won't have been halted. And in a way, the, the flaw with the circuit breaker scheme is that if it's not going well for the SPD, they're not going to want an election. That's the thing about these coalition governments, that in a way, you are locked in. Because if it's going well, then there's a reason to continue. And if it's not going well, the last thing you want to do, because it would trigger an election, is go back to the country. And the, the history of coalition governments in Europe in recent years has just been consistently that the smaller party gets trapped. But you may be right that it can't get much worse for them, but it can't get much worse for them because their vote is at absolute historic rock bottoms. It's true, it could go down from 20% to 10%. But, but it's yeah. also, just one final thing, is it is also a reason why I think to explain this membership vote again, which was quite a solid vote in favour of the Grand Coalition, they were looking at opinion polls, and there was no doubt that the SPD was drifting behind the AFD. Now, to go back to elections under those circumstances would have been suicide for the SPD. So that thinking is already moving forward to explaining going into the Grand Coalition today. I think, though, it's probably just as much as a problem for the Christian Democrats, and certainly for the Christian Social Union, this, this coalition agreement. They've had to give up a lot, particularly what you've already said, the finance ministry. What struck me in terms of what I read of the the agreement is how much micro detail there is in there, including about these individual spending cut commitments, how to essentially spend Germany's budget surplus. And yet on the, the really big questions that have caused so many problems for German government over the last year, not least matters to do with the, the European Union, we get some pretty general stuff. I think there's one point where Germany's position on the EU issues is described as moving towards an awakening. Now, presumably this means some kind of closer cooperation with France, going back to trying to get an agreement about how we're going to reform the Eurozone and deal with a host of other issues. But where there is any detail, it's on things that aren't particularly politically controversial, although they may be technically difficult, like turning the European stability mechanism into an actual entity within EU law, as opposed to existing under an intergovernmental treaty. But if you say how is this new German government going to deal with the, the litany of EU problems that are coming? I don't think that this coalition agreement has got the answer, and it's really easy to see how the parties are not going to agree with each other. Do you think, was it Chris Clark, always too many Chris's on this podcast, when we talked about this we, before... We need we, a cull. We need a cull. Well, we need another way of referring to your <laughs> nicknames. We won't go down that route. Um, when we talked about it before, there was obviously the question, I mean, this was very high stakes for Macron, the German election... And then the outcome, and there were some very bad scenarios for him, including if the, if the Liberals had been, the FPD had been a part of the government. This looks like a really good outcome for Macron, both because it's mainstream, it's, it's a grand coalition, but also it's relatively weak. In a way, it's win-win for him, isn't it? It's as close as he could wish for in terms of what the government looks like. And then in European terms, he's at the moment more secure than they are. Yes, well, one has to think back here to, I think it was September last year, wasn't it, when Macron gave his Sorbonne speech, a really remarkable speech in which he sort of set out his vision for Europe. 
And from Germany, there came a deafening silence, virtually no response whatsoever. And everybody wondered, what, what is the great partner in the, Anglo, in, the, in the Franco-German motor? What are they going to say to this? And the answer was, well, they didn't have very much to say at all because they were waiting to form a government. Now the government has formed. And I completely take Helen's point about the vagueness of the idea of awakening, though I do think Erweckung has quite a powerful history in the idea of Erweckung in Germany, of you know evangelical Christians transforming their consciousness. And I think they're talking about... Well, that really trans- ended well in Germany. <laughs> no, hasn't always ended well, but I mean, the point is that it's a, an all-embracing transformation of consciousness, of political consciousness that they're, that they're talking about. But That does uh, sound ambitious. That, that does say. sound ambitious, but the interesting thing is that in the coalition treaty, there is an entire chapter on Europe. That's the main thing. And it's quite clear that key figures from both of the key parties, the CDU and the, and the SPD within the coalition, are in favour of very close collaboration with Macron. Merkel is in favour of it, so is Scholz. Um, so are other key SPD figures, uh, including, interestingly enough, Andrea Nahles on the SPD left. So everybody's behind that. Uh, everybody who matters is behind that, or most people who matter. And Macron has played an interesting role in this whole process. I mean, during the debate and the campaign over whether SPD, the SPD should enter the government or not, Martin Schulz, who was then you know, running the campaign effectively, repeatedly referred to Macron, saying, you know, I've had Macron on the phone, he's been urging us to do this. And it became actually quite a comical thing, with lots of cartoons showing the phone ringing and it's Macron yet again, uh, and so on. So, you know, Macron has been a name to conjure with in this whole process. And, and I think that is very interesting and quite new in German politics, for the name of a French politician to play that kind of role. So I think that there could be, I completely agree, at the moment it's all looking very vague, but this could open a new chapter in Franco-German collaboration on questions of Europe and could usher in a more proactive stance on European issues. But Helen, I sense that you think that there are things that they could profoundly fall out over quite quickly, even in the process of awakening. Eurobonds? Well, well, I don't think even the, the Social Democrats are going to support Eurobonds. I think that actually Macron's problem might, in this sense, in terms of the immediately upcoming issues on the Euro, might be where they agree. And that would be on a successor to Draghi at the European Central Bank, where there is clearly a strong German preference for that person to be German. And if not German, then another German-minded ally in Eurozone terms. And I don't necessarily think we're going to see a difference between, I could be wrong about this, but between the two parties on this, because generally on monetary matters, German party opinion isn't divided. And the European Central Bank president is... There's other crucial questions, but it's the unavoidable one because there has to be a successor in place when Draghi leaves next summer. The problem, I think, runs a little bit deeper, which is to refer back to what Chris Clark was saying about Martin Schulz. So when you're talking and you say Chris, then we know it's yeah. okay. Chris. So Chris was talking about these constant references to Emmanuel Macron. It became so consistent as a part of Schulz's speeches that towards the end, and, and significantly when he gave his speech around why the SPD should support the, the Grand Coalition to SPD delegates, where there was a very close vote. When he's talked about having had a conversation with Emmanuel Macron, he was booed. And there was this feeling that he was just trying to name drop, basically, to boost his own sort of flagging reputation. Now, the irony, I think, is that if you go back to the September elections in Germany, if you look at the electoral outcome, so again, this is about the difference between representing versus just being a responsible government. In representative terms, there wasn't a mandate, an electoral mandate, for a real big push on deepening of the European Union. There simply wasn't. In fact, the mandate for Merkel was really the opposite, was to be extremely cautious, and especially with the growth of the AFD vote, it was clearly not a a pro-European vote. So what you have, ironically, with this SPD coalition is a much more pro-European platform 
than one that could really be derived from the electoral arithmetics of the of the vote itself. And to go back to Chris Clark's point earlier, I mean, isn't this the central issue? So there are possible divisions in the two main parties, and there are possible divisions within the coalition. But the risk for European politics consistently over the last 10 years has been a division between politics and government. I mean, that's the risk. And the possible outcome here is that the big split that has been deepened is between an electorate that did. I know that if you put the two main parties together, you get just over the line for a majority of the electorate. But given the two main parties are split, that's... But if you look at the outcome of the election, as Chris Pickton said, it did not give a mandate for this. And there must be a risk going forward that the big split is between the voting public and their representatives in government. And that's the split that is driving a lot of contemporary politics around the world. And Germany's not immune, surely. Is Germany always immune to this thing with its awakenings? <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's, the, it's that fundamental problem of consent, which has manifested itself in relation to the European Union, the Brexit referendum. It manifests itself in terms of individual countries' politics. And if you analyse in German election in these terms and what has then happened, what you would say is that there was pretty weak consent to the continuing grand coalition. And yet the outcome of the process that has ensued since the election is... A grand coalition and you would bet that in the same way in which it shed votes the grand coalition parties between 2013 and now it will shed votes again that's absolutely right and yet the gallup polls have shown very high levels of approval for the coalition since its formation so that, that's, that that's a paradox, encouraging. it's a paradoxical observation i think it's absolutely right there is a tension there between what the electorate originally wanted and what has emerged but nevertheless despite all of that the most recent Gallup results suggest high levels of satisfaction. And so this could be a test of German exceptionalism. It is possible that Germany, for constitutional, historical and cultural reasons, is not going to go down the path that it can tolerate politics. And like you said, with the party itself, it can tolerate separating the two out, which no one else can deal with. And I think the bottom line is Germans love stability. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. So let's talk about Italy then. Well, they don't love stability. (laughs) So in Italy, who knows what kind of government we're going to get in Italy, and we'll come on to that. But the one thing that is clear is that there was a majority, broadly speaking, for parties that had Eurosceptical stances. Certainly, in some sense or other, if the establishment is the European Union anti-establishment party. So this includes the Five Star Movement, but it also includes the the League, which did much better than Forza Italia, than Berlusconi's party. We'll come on to Berlusconi as well in a bit. He didn't do as well as he's not the power broker that we thought maybe he was. And then the Brothers of Italy as well. So you put those three together and you're well over 50%. You've actually got something comparable to the Grand Coalition in terms of support. So Italy, again, looks like it's gone down a very, very different route from Germany. I think what was amazing with Italy was 
the capacity, once again, to actually surprise people. I think we should have by now learned that we should expect the unexpected and to hold back on thinking, oh, it's a done deal. But nevertheless, people were saying Berlusconi's back, he's going to cobble together this centre-right coalition, which will have a majority. Um, he won't lead it himself as Prime Minister, but somebody of his political family will. And that's what Italy will get. And Berlusconi did a kind of deal with Juncker, which was that he'd toe the line on uh, on the euro and on Italy's membership of the eurozone. And so the result was then extremely surprising because the the parties that were these kind of new anti-system sort of challenger parties did quite a bit better, I think, than many expected. The Five Star Movement did very well, though I think it was already expected to do pretty well. It did a bit better than we thought. The bigger surprise was this reversal in the leadership of the right in Italy, where the Lega came out on top of Forza Italia. So those are pretty surprising results. Um, What's going on in Italy is that there is no majority for anything. That's the issue. So the Lega and the Five Star Movement have in common their anger and their frustration with the political class and the status quo, yes. But they don't have that much else in common. And they are drawing from very different kinds of support, aren't they, on the whole? And including the generational issue. Well, it's also the geographical issue. I mean, it's south for Five Star and north for the League. And is it older voters for the League and generally younger voters for Five Star? That's a little bit less clear, but yes, the Five Star has definitely hoovered up sort of young Italians, not just young, but into the sort of 30s, 40s, many vote for the Five Star Movement. The Five Star Movement has a slightly better claim to be a national movement than the Lega, though the great transformation that Salvini has achieved with the Lega is to transform it into not just a secessionist, separatist, slightly parochial movement, but into one that has a bigger national story, particularly about immigration. But in terms of who votes for them, it's dominated by northern voters. And as you said, there's a lot of anger, but how far does the anti-European sentiment go in terms of possible options? I mean, there isn't a majority coming out of this election for leaving the euro, is there? So one of the great mysteries of the campaign was you had these powerfully Eurosceptic parties leading the campaign who had committed themselves very forcefully to a referendum on the euro. This five-star movement has talked about monetary sovereignty ever since it was created and has riled against the, the impact of eurozone membership on Italy. But the campaign miraculously went extremely quiet on all questions relating to euro membership. It's almost as if there was this kind of deadening force of depoliticization being exerted over important questions related to Italy's membership of the euro. And all the focus was on race, on immigration. And it was a very nasty campaign. There were racist attacks that um, that took place during the campaign that a lot of people talked about. So race was a big thing. The questions of the euro dropped out. Now, the position at the moment is these are still Eurosceptic parties. They are not very enthusiastic about the euro, but they have rowed very much away from committing themselves to Euro exit and are much more ambivalent about even the question of a referendum. To me, that's the main riddle of the outcome of these elections is they don't seem to have produced a strong anti-European position. And I wonder if the reason for that is that although these elections were about racism, xenophobia and all those things that we know about, they weren't really about nationalism. And national feeling, in fact, seems to be in decline in Italy. And I've been reading a a piece in the TLS, a good piece by Tim Parks, in which he cites the Italian historian Ernesto Galli della Loggia, saying, and I quote, this is from an article in the Corriere della Sera, Italians no longer have any idea what Italy is for. And I wonder if that's part of the reason why you can get a typical sort of far-right style campaign, but which doesn't pan out into a strong nationalist stance against the EU. I think that structurally, though, the election is about the 
problem of Italy's relationship to the euro and the European Union. I agree entirely with Chris because it's clearly just the case that it's true that the euro issue itself did not play much part in the election at all and the, and the two non-establishment parties had retreated from their previous commitments on having a referendum and I think you have to understand that in the context of, of what was Greece's fate or at least the lessons that have been drawn from what was Greece's fate and Syriza's experience of holding that referendum on the third Greek bailout. But if you look at the the underlying structural conditions of Italian politics, what we see is falling support for the European project in Italy. So Italy used to be one of the most pro-European electorates, and now I think it's the third or the fourth lowest in terms of the Eurobarometer's support for the European project. You also look at the state of the Italian economy, which has not recovered. It's some way off still from the position that it was in 2008. You have nearly 40% youth unemployment in Italy, which wasn't the case before the Eurozone crisis started. And then you have what has happened to Italy's democracy under the Eurozone, particularly what happened in autumn of 2011, when the European Central Bank and Angela Merkel and the Italian president acted together to remove Berlusconi's government from office and replace it with this technocratic cabinet. And it is in the context of that moment, I think, that the Five Star Movement arose. I mean, they went from not even competing in the previous election in 2008 to being the largest party in 2013. And what is at the centre of the Five Star Movement's critique is is a complete dismissal of the Italian political class as anti-democratic and corrupt. And I think that one of the problems that Berlusconi had in terms of coming back was that he is a symbol of what happened at that moment in autumn of 2011 and essentially he went off to Yonko and other people in the EU and asked for their blessing they patted him on the head and he came back and said okay now I'm the least bad guy you can find to run Italy well I don't think that's a very convincing story to an Italian electorate for many of whom see that moment as Italy's democracy and its sovereignty being under assault. I think that in some senses that Berlusconi could not come back whilst he humiliated himself by going and asking the Commission and Eurozone ministers for their blessing. And Juncker hasn't helped by saying since the election, more or less, he thinks Italy is now ungovernable. I know he's rode back from that, but he... he... Salvini had a good set yeah. phrase where he said, every time Juncker opens his mouth, I win votes, uh, which is not inaccurate. But I think that what's going on, we have to nuance. I think we shouldn't read the Italian elections as the resurgence of a nationalist wave across southern Europe. I think Chris is right. However, there's no doubt that this was not a pro-European result in any way. Emma Bonino, who was running on a ticket which was the only really genuinely pro-European ticket, had very few votes, no seats whatsoever, complete failure. So the only pro-European party and all of the sort of parties was the one that did terribly so but the mystery I think is that on the other hand what struck me about the campaign was the specific nature of some of the racism the question of immigration not nationalism as such and I think there is something about the structure of Italian politics which is that if you take broad macroeconomic questions off the table then the only thing you can really argue about are questions of race culture you know, you can't talk about the deep economic issues. So that's that was the nature of the campaign. And the intensity of, of the and the virulence of the racism, I think, was a reflection of the inability to actually question and properly debate the broader macroeconomic structure. So how big a problem does this pose for the Macron-Merkel project now? Italy is always held up as that one that you can't live with them, can't live without them kind of country. And there may be economic and financial consequences further down the line that, that sort of focus people's minds. But before that happens, is this a problem for them? I mean, is it a problem for the stability that Merkel is trying to bring to European politics? Italy is 
it's not ungovernable, but its democracy is not working. It's a big problem, especially it's immediately after the vote where people were saying, imagine Italy with Salvini as prime minister. I mean, this was as much of a shock in many ways as the Brexit referendum, as the election of Donald Trump. Really big deal. If it's the case that the Five Star Movement puts together a coalition where it relies on support from the Democratic Party, uh, the PD, and if it pursues what is a slightly sort of pragmatic strain within the Five Star Movement, where what they're interested in is problem solving, not grand ideological projects. That's been a long-standing part of the movement. If that's what takes the fore, rather than the anti-establishment populist side... And with somebody like Di Maio in power as a prime minister, he incarnates that. Though very young, he does have this slightly pragmatic sort of a case-by-case sort of approach to things. There you can imagine there being some sense in which Italy would toe the line in Europe and could sign off on some deals that Macron and Merkel might wish. But that's the only possibility, I think. If some other configuration comes to power in Italy, then I think it'd be much more difficult. I think the thing that is going to bring matters to a head relatively quickly is Italy's fiscal position because both of these parties are committed to spending more money in one way or another, particularly on pensions, which was the issue that triggered the exit of Berlusconi. So for Italy to be safe for the Eurozone, so to speak, Italy's budget deficit can't be that much more than 3%. It doesn't probably have to be right under. I'm not going to put a number on how much further it could go over 3%, but if, if they're not committed, if this new government is not committed to being in the ballpark of a 3% budget deficit, there will have to be a confrontation. Because I just do not see any world in which Merkel or the European Central Bank, or even the Commission for that matter, which does have a role when it comes to budget deficits, is going to accept an Italian government that is merrily increasing Italy's budget deficit. When you look at the overall size of Italy's debt. Now, for the last well, probably since 2012, Italy's borrowing, not just its present borrowing, but it's rolling over its past borrowing. And Italy has about 130% state debt in relation to GDP is being propped up by the European Central Bank. In fact, it's pretty much the case that nobody is buying Italy's debt except for the European Central Bank. Now, that works pretty well when Draghi is the, you know, his Italian is in charge of the European Central Bank, but that's coming to an end next summer. And this is where the German question, the Italian question interact, because the German government, and I don't think they're going to be divided about this, want a German to be the next president of the European Central Bank. And will want, from that point on, quantitative easing ended. Now, once that happens, then Italy's debt is a real problem, a bigger problem than than anything else is. So if we get through the build-up to the summer of 2019, we've got an Italian government that is pushing the Italian budget deficit up anyway, then we're going to see a risk back into the bond markets and we're going to see, I think, it being pretty difficult, if not impossible, to find any way of reforming the Eurozone in the way that Merkel and Macron say they want. I mean, and, and I think that actually the German and the French position are not particularly compatible on that in the first instance before we even get to adding Italy into that mix. So can I ask a, a question that also connects the two? Chris Bickton just mentioned the Democratic Party, the, the PD, Renzi's party, who had a, expected to have a bad election, had a very bad election, maybe a tiny bit worse than people thought. And they're polling somewhere near where the SPD are polling. We're talking about these social democratic parties, mainstream social democratic parties of government, which are now bumping around around 20% of the electorate. And this seems to be the thing that connects a lot of what's going on. Britain is different because it's not clear whether Labour still is or isn't a mainstream social democratic party. But 
Elsewhere, it's part of the story in France and Macron, the collapse of the mainstream established Social Democratic Party happened in the Netherlands. This seems to be the thing that connects it, the death of European social democracy. And that is a huge event in the history of Europe since the Second World War. It was Mainstream social democracy was a huge part of the thriving of European politics in the second half of the 20th century. I know it was people will argue Jan Bernamuller among others that it was primarily a Christian democratic enterprise but having a social democratic alternative government seems to me was the key building block of European politics in this period if you do not have an alternative social democratic government on the table everything changes doesn't it? I think everything does and everything is changing to be honest. Um, I think the vacuum left at the centre of politics by the retreat of mainstream social democratic parties is the incubator for the rise of these new parties that we're talking about. In the French case it's absolutely catastrophic. They've even sold off their iconic kind of headquarters to pay their own debts. You know, This is the end in many ways in France for the centre left. The question, I suppose, is why is it happening? And I think why is it happening is a systematic feature of Western European politics, not just as isolated instances, as exceptional cases. The reason why I think it is so systematic is that the centre-left at the moment in Europe is divided on the question of Europe. It doesn't know what to do, and it's, I think, paralysed. What you have is that the tools of government that made the social democratic project possible in the post-war period appear to have disappeared. However, they have not reappeared at the pan-European level. They just seem to have gone. So there's a kind of powerlessness that's affected the centre-left, which makes its political project just not very plausible. People don't really think they can do what they may wish to do. Just remind us what what those tools are. Primarily the, the capacity of government to intervene and shape the economy, the policy tools where governments can, for instance, set their interest rates, make plausible claims about taxing and spending that are not externally so constrained, have some control over the national borders of their own economy, uh, not just in economics but in other areas. I mean, the, the national sort of component of the social democratic project was hugely important. Uh, now, if you take that away, which I think is the situation we're in, People then say, okay, well, we should look to Europe. We can reconstruct this project at the European level. Now, that's been the bet for the last 20-odd years. And the evidence, I think, for voters is pretty thin. There's some evidence that Brussels is cracking down on tax avoidance, things like that. But there's not much evidence that we're seeing the birth of European social democracy. So for voters, they don't know where to go, certainly not to the centre-left, because it's just not a plausible project anymore. That's all absolutely right, I think. And underlying those political changes, I think, are deep structural changes that lie beyond the control of, of governments and are not uniquely European, in fact. Globalisation, the, the fragmentation of the workplace, deindustrialization. this has kind of ravaged the milieu in which the old social democrat parties used to flourish. And so that cradle-to-grave you know, environmental party culture, which is almost a piece of the ecology, is dying because its habitat is being broken up. And that's something I think that you know, governments can do very little and parties can do very little to arrest. I think it's a bit more complicated just because I think that the social democratic parties in most West European countries, Britain accepted, were actually relatively weak in the 1950s and the 1960s. I mean, the social democrats were not in power in Germany until the end of the 60s. Mitterrand was the first socialist president of France and he didn't come until 1981. Actually, the Communist Party was a stronger force in the left in, in Italy for much of the post-war 
period, Spain, another country where the, the centre-left had been in trouble, was, was still under Franco's uh, rule during those decades. Britain actually looks like something of an outlier then as well. So in some sense, I think the relatively successful decades then in these countries, politics for the centre-left becomes the 80s, 90s and perhaps the early 2000s. So in some sense, then you've got to tell some story as to, OK, what happened in those years when that they did better that have ended up causing the problems that they now have because clearly they are now in a much worse position than they were in the 1950s and 1960s and I think that Chris's story may fit in at that point because in some sense that these are the parties that pushed the let's call it the Delors version of the European project and I think in part they've paid the price for that. And I should say the 50s and 60s I think what I was thinking of was that they were still even though they weren't in government if the Christian democratic project failed they were the alternative. Yeah. And it just seems at the moment, and Britain again, you know, the British Labour Party is divided on the issues that Chris Bickton was talking about, but Britain accepted, and this has to do with electoral systems and so on. They are no longer plausible alternative governments. The SPD are not going to lead a government in Germany, I don't think, for a long time to come. I think Helen's absolutely right that the that the SPD in Germany are paying a price, and I think they're also paying a price for this kind of race to the centre. You know, Schröder transformed the party's profile. He became Chancellor in 1998 by embracing a sort of broad tranche of, of social and economic reforms, the sort of so-called Agenda 2010, which moved the party away from its sort of grassroots and from its left wing into the centre. Reforms which were viewed by parts of the party as a betrayal. Incidentally, the same phenomenon has happened with the CDU. Large parts of the CDU now regard Merkel as having betrayed the sort of values of German conservatism. So this move to the centre has led to rifts on both sides of that party divide. But for the SPD, it's been particularly damaging. So I want to ask one last question. There's so much more we can talk about. We haven't even got onto the implications for Brexit and everything else. One last question for Chris Bickerton, which is, the other oddity of the Italian election was the extent to which the parties that did well are quite keen on Putin. What's that about? So this is more pronounced, I think, in the case of Salvini. There has also been said in the case of the Five Star Movement. I, I don't have a particularly good explanation of that. I think there's a sort of... Um, taboo breaking which I think Salvini engages in all the time if you look at the different t-shirts that he's worn then one of them has the sort of imprinted image of Putin on it whether it reflects a serious foreign policy stance that could be the one taken by an Italian government is a slightly more I suppose serious question in some ways yes possibly I mean there is a strain of thought within Italy that is much more favorable to Russia which in some way he might incarnate um, but I don't know in that sense that, that we'd have to see whether he actually goes with that or not and if he does then we might get a better sense presumably of this could be one of the other fault lines in European politics I think it, it, I think it actually does reflect one of the fault lines that's already there and that is relations with Russia are in significant part about countries needs in relation to oil and gas and some of them need to import oil and gas from Russia and Italy is one of them. So having a situation where certain countries pushed by the United States want very confrontational relations with Russia and sanctions is problematic for those countries that see their long-term energy needs as having to be met, not if not primarily, but significantly by Russia. There's so much more that we could talk about and these conversations are picking up on lots of things that we've discussed in the past. We've got quite a big back catalogue now, so what we're going to try and do is link up present and past conversations put links on twitter at tppodcast underscore 
We think that this week, if you want to hear us talking about Italy a few months ago with Nadia Urbinati, I think that shapes some of what we're talking about here. We didn't really talk about Berlusconi. It's incredible. We had When we talked to Nadia Urbinati, we thought this would all be about Berlusconi, and it's not. The surprises keep coming. And also, we'll link to the one that we, the conversation we had with Chris Clark before the German election where he called that right. So Chris is the person to know what's coming next. I can tell you what's coming next week. We're talking to George Monbiot. More reasons to be cheerful about how we could do politics better, but with a definite apocalyptic tinge this time. We've nearly sold out of our excellent tote bags, but if you want to get some of the last ones that are left, you can get them through our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com. Do join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Um, yeah, I had slight bits of fruit diced into some goat's milk kefir. You did not. Your answer to the breakfast question is just on a different register. <laughs> what did you genuinely? I had I had kiwi fruit and uh, mango diced into goat's milk kefir with milled flax seeds, and chia, and some honey. And that was actually all. 270 or something. No, I'm actually 2,340 years old. I'm actually a Neolith. Exactly. I'm still eating the paleo diet that I, I was brought up on. In so many ways. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, like you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.